At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, we start with a prediction Trump will lose in 2020. Also, we'll take a look back at some of our most important interviews and some of our favorites from the past year. First, Naomi Klein on the Green New Deal. She says we need to follow the example of the New Deal era of the 1930s when nothing would have happened without massive pressure from social movements that, in her words, changed the calculus of what was possible. Naomi, of course, is the author of several number one bestsellers, including This Changes Everything. Plus, movies and politics. No political figure has blurred the line between them more than Ronald Reagan and no president understood the power of collective fantasy better than Reagan did. That's what the great movie critic Jay Hoberman says. We'll speak with him later in the show. His new book about movie culture in the age of Reagan is called Make My Day. First up, some good news. The 2020 election will liberate us from Donald Trump and Republican hegemony. A sweeping Democratic victory will make it possible at last for us to address our most serious problems because 2020 will bring the death of the Republican Party as we've known it. That's what Stan Greenberg says. He's a longtime pollster and advisor to presidents from Clinton to Obama. He's also a best-selling author with a new book out. It has the wonderful title, R-I-P-G-O-P, How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. Stan Greenberg, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Well, everybody agrees that the political divide in America is deeper today than ever before. The middle ground has disappeared. You talk about what you call the new America, younger people, women, especially single women, people of color, secular, urban, college-educated people. That's the new America. And then there's the Republican Party. Who exactly did they mobilize? The key to, to Trump, you know, winning was the fact that he built his base with the Tea Party, 
um, inside the Republican Party. That's how they, you know, that's how they got the nomination. He built an alliance with evangelicals, and that gave him about half the party. If you look at the primary, about half the voters were with him. But it was it was a party divided, and genuinely split, you know, with the rest of the party, with McCain, you know, McCain secular conservatives uh, and moderates who were socially liberal. He you know, he won the the Tea Party base because he he hated the the, uh, the changes we're talking about more than anyone else. He showed how much he hated Obama. He was a birther, and he battled he battled against the New America. He showed he, he showed he qualified. You know, to you know, to leave the uh, leave this party, but it meant throwing himself off a, off a cliff, running in the most extreme possible way against government, against immigration, ultimately um, as a, as a social conservative. But he was leading a smaller and smaller party, and so if you look right now, he's driven out the the social conservative, the secular conservatives, the moderates. In like we have a ten point shift since 2018, as he's driven those voters out. But he now has a 70% base. He had half before, but now the party has defined his base as 70% of the party. He's become more and more extreme, more and more anti-government, more and more anti-immigration, and as a result, producing trends that uh, make the Democratic win even more likely. I want to go back just for a minute to 2016 and Hillary's unexpected loss, which... I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about, we all have, I think probably your most important chapter in your book, R-I-P-G-O-P, is about why Hillary lost. The 2016 election should not have been close. Why did she lose? How could the Democrats lose Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin? A tragedy, obviously. Uh, the, um, and it was, and the, what I do write about in the... Uh, how much, you know, they didn't campaign there. They didn't respect working people there. You know, it's bigger than, uh, you know, bigger than that. Because at the heart of losing these uh, voters is what's happening with working people. Uh, and if you look at the recommendations I'm making here, they, they very much center on not just having a politics that, you know, build builds with, you know, understanding them and, and uh, building forward. But the, this was a campaign that, declined to make working people or the economy uh, center stage. She, um, in, in her book, she says, Stan was critical that that I didn't, you know, wasn't tough enough on the economy. And I talked to the economy all the time, she said. I was definitely wrong on that. The economy was like central to what I was talking about. Well, the problem wasn't she wasn't talking about it. It was what she was saying. Um, she said, like, President Obama build on the build on the progress. They saw an economy that was uh, that was moving in the right direction. Jobs have been created. In, you know, incomes up, poverty coming down. That's you know that's just she closed her election. Now we you know, one had no idea that she you know would close the campaign with this idea that we were this was a, we were building on success. We were got rid of the whole idea that we were changed. We were totally the status quo. Men, you know, she ran on, on continuity. Uh, and that, uh, but what we find is that President Obama, almost everybody living in the uh, metropolitan areas, missed what was happening over that decade. Not you, obviously, not us. Uh, but since the financial crisis, loss of wealth, loss of income, created a country where, where the leaders continually just misjudge 
what's happening in the country, including President Trump, you know, who will be defeated again on, you know, talking about how good the economy is and how good wages are. No, they're big structural changes um, that demand change. You have some unforgettable data in your book, uh, R.I.P. G.O.P. The one that struck me was uh, on this issue of understanding working class people. How many unmarried women cannot pay for an emergency that would cost $500? You say it's a majority. A majority of unmarried women cannot pay $500 if an emergency came up. That's right. I, you know, I, I actually put that graph you know, right up front in that chapter, but I also put it right up front after they lost um, in, the, in the poll I did right after the election when I would say, build on the progress. What are you talking about? <laughs> the people who are the most vulnerable, but keep in mind, a quarter of the electorate is not a small section when we're talking about unmarried women you know, who, can't, who can't afford a $500 and that's why they were responsive to the leaders who were who understood the you know, who understood that despair. So the new America reemerged in 2018 in the midterm elections with you know voters mobilized by outrage about Trump. You think that mobilization will continue in November 2020, but aren't midterm elections usually quite different from presidential elections? You know, life has been changed by uh, by President Trump, you know, just as I got up every day to write uh, write this book, people got involved all across, you know, across the uh, the country and organizations, the resistance. Indeed, I dedicate the book to the resistance and you know, and to the women's march. Uh, you know, where this started, and that's actually what's so different, and why the rising American electorate and the inevitability of the demographics is a different different phenomenon that we're a different country. That is, people are organizing, they're active, they're becoming conscious. And that's what, you know, what happened is that Trump's, uh, Trump's election produced a new consciousness, engagement. You have some other very important data about current public opinion on two crucial political questions. Should the government be more active in addressing our problems and... Immigration benefits the country, agree or disagree? These are, of course, Trump's two central themes. What's the evidence on what Americans think about this right now? On whether government should be uh, more involved or whether uh, we should depend on individuals and business, we've seen the surge of people wanting the government to be active, uh, to do uh, to do more. You know, over sixty percent, the opposite of what is happening. So as people watch this attempt to suffocate government, which is what the Tea Party Republican Party has done, the, the public is saying, no, we want more activist government. And the other is immigration. Uh, when Trump was elected, half the country said uh, immigration benefits the country. That's now jumped to 65%. And we're tracking new polling. It's showing an increasing every day believe that immigration benefits the country. This, this is a real pushback to the administration because they are becoming more and more virulent in how they're dealing with immigration. Countries are becoming more pro-immigration in, uh, in response. But the other is them being engaged. The off-year election in 2018 was the highest turnout in the history of off-year elections. We have a measure 
on a one to ten scale, how closely you're following following politics. Ten being you're following it extremely, you know, extremely closely. Ten on that scale in 2018 in November hit the highest point that we had reached. This was the highest turnout election. It matched the presidential number we had in 16, which had been the highest. Okay. But after the election, in every election, in any poll I've ever done, we, that number goes down. People pull back and then come back month after month, and then it goes up again at the very end. Well, that number has gone up 10 points since the 18 election. Wow. There's been a 10-point increase in engagement since the 18 election. So people become, have a more engaged, more consolidated behind the Democrats, more pro-immigration every day, more pro-government every day they watch. So it's not inevitability. It's a it's in, it's mobilization, engagement, public consciousness of, of their values. The engagement of politics is producing a new uh, a new electoral map because it keeps accelerating against the Republican Party. That becomes even more extreme and more marginalized. Uh, it makes it hard for the Republican Party to come off it uh, in a way to, to rebuild the party. Okay, so we have increasing mobilization. We have the inevitability of the demographic forces that are benefiting the Democratic Party. But we also have divisions in the Democratic Party. You know all about the divisions in the Democratic Party. Tell us about what the big ones are right now. Uh, I think partly the elites aren't reading uh, the, the country and aren't reading the Democrats right. Every time there's a debate, you know, you have, you know, the fraught commentary on, oh, my God, we're driving away moderate over, uh, voters. You know, we're running for, you know, the, uh, the base and therefore we're going to lose independence. But that's missing what happened after this uh, uh, 2018. It's also, but it's also missing the fact that Democrats have become, more, you know, more determined that government play a large role, but so have all voters. And there's now a huge amount of support for government playing a, you know, a bigger role dealing with the environment, dealing with climate, climate change, dealing with inequality, dealing with health care, even within, within the health care debate, you know, on the debate stage. Everybody, indeed including Biden, was not talking about minor changes in the Affordable Care Act. He wasn't even quite conscious of how much change he was proposing. Everybody on that, on that stage was talking about dramatically more, a dramatically larger government role in, uh, in health care which is now just taken for granted, and I believe politically uh, effective and helpful. And do you argue not just that Trump will lose in 2020, but that he will bring about, you're quite clear about this, the death of the Republican Party as we know it right now. So politics in Washington starting in 2021 will look more like California, where the Democrats have majorities in, in both branches of Congress and in the executive. But aren't there a lot of places in America where the Republicans will win no matter what? The red states? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you can't change the Constitution and that they can be a successful you know, party you know, you know, in those states. But losing control you know, nationally has a, has a huge co uh, cost for their coalition. Uh, and we'll see how long they're willing to be out of power, you know, na uh, nationally. They are fighting 
the social modernization you know, of the country. They're fighting the sexual revolution in their current budget <laughs> of the federal government. They're trying to get rid of sex education. Their battle uh, you know, against the Affordable Care Act, the suit to the Supreme Court, was on contraception. You can't stop, stop the growing diversity, the growing multiculturalism. And all of that, moving forward at, at great bank speed, they are fighting it, fighting back. They're producing a party which is concentrated only in the most socially conservative and anti-government, anti-immigrant part of the, uh, part of the electorate. Um, and they can't survive nationally as a party. They're only going to get smaller. It's, you know, this, this, this embankment within the Republican Party only gets a smaller and smaller piece as they go off the cliff and get defeated in this election. We need an economy that works for everyone, not just the rich and well-connected. That should be the message in 2020, says Stan Greenberg, longtime Democratic pollster and strategist. His indispensable new book is R.I.P.G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. Stan, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, and I really do think this is a transformative moment. Next up, Naomi Klein on the Green New Deal. She's an award-winning journalist, a syndicated columnist, and, of course, author of the bestsellers No Is Not Enough, This Changes Everything, The Shock Doctrine, and No Logo, books that change the lives of a lot of us. She's a member of the board of directors for the International Climate Action Group 350.org. She's also senior correspondent for The Intercept, She's a writing fellow for the Type Media Center. We used to call it the Nation Institute. And she's a contributor to The Nation magazine. Her recent articles have appeared in The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Guardian, and The London Review of Books. Naomi Klein, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with you again. Well, how would you describe the Green New Deal resolution that was announced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey? Well, it is a a sweeping plan to radically transform how we get energy, move ourselves around, live in cities, grow our food, and it puts justice at the center, justice broadly defined as everything from racial justice to making sure no worker is left behind, battling inequality, battling poverty. So it's really about multitasking. It's about understanding that we are in a time of multiple overlapping crises, but we are also on an incredibly tight deadline when it comes to lowering greenhouse gas emissions in time to prevent truly catastrophic warming. And that means that if we're going to get emissions down as quickly as we do in order to bring people along with these changes, there have to be benefits in the here and now in terms of the kinds of jobs that are provided uh, and the justice that comes through. You say the Green New Deal is not a question that will be settled through elections alone. What do you mean? Well, in terms of winning the power to introduce a package as ambitious as as is being outlined in the resolution, the only real historical precedent is the original New Deal. And the political dynamics that produced the original New Deal were not 
a benevolent politician handing it down from up on high from the goodness of his heart. Absolutely, it mattered to have FDR instead of Hoover in power, who was open to these kinds of transformations, but it mattered even more to have an incredibly organized uh, population, which was flexing its muscles in every conceivable way from, in the 1930s, from you know, sit-down strikes in, in auto plants to shutting down the ports on the West Coast to shutting down entire cities with general strikes and having you know more radical political voices who were calling for policies more radical than the New Deal, uh, like a truly cooperative economy. So all of that created the context in which FDR was able to sell the New Deal to elites, certainly begrudgingly received by them, but as a compromise because the alternative seemed to be political revolution. So the only way that something like this happens is if there, it is accompanied by a huge grassroots mobilization where you know every workplace, every sector, um, every movement is asking, what would a New Deal mean for us? What would it mean for our sector? What would it mean in our workplace? What would it mean for the groups that we represent? And really making it their own. And I think one of the really great things about the resolution is that it's a lot more decentralized in terms of how it's proposing to roll out than the original New Deal. It is all about community empowerment and decentralization and calls for uh, this kind of organizing. So, you know, I don't think it's only movements and I don't think it's only politicians. I think it is only both that will make this possible. So uh, it's going to take a hell of a lot of grassroots organizing, uh, mobilizing all of these sectors to really believe that the New Deal is going to make their lives better, and that being coupled with politicians running at every level of government, including for president, with a promise to enact this on day one. Let me underline what you said, that building political power is about changing the calculus of what is possible. That's really a big obstacle. We saw that in a column by Gail Collins in the New York Times last week. She argued the Green New Deal is way too far-reaching and that we should focus our efforts on uh, more manageable things like building more electric generating capacity from solar and wind. It's not exactly opposing the Green New Deal, but it's certainly not helping. Right. I mean, there is this idea that a more kind of uh, incrementalist or just climate-focused policy that doesn't talk about fighting inequality, that doesn't talk about a huge jobs program, that doesn't talk about health care for all, would make it more sellable. But what's amazing to me is that what's actually stood in the way of strong climate policy in the past has been that, you know, in times of uh, real economic stress, like the ones we've been living in, people consistently rank climate, even people who care about climate change, or even people who vote Democrat, if you ask them to rank the issues that they care about, climate change will always rank below health care, below jobs. Um, you know, often it ranks last on the list of political priorities. And that's why politicians always feel that it's um, sacrificeable. I mean, Obama did that, right? He, he looked at the polls and he prioritized health care. And, you know, when that led to a huge amount of of pushback, he really didn't spend any political capital trying to get the totally inadequate cap-and-trade policy through. So this idea that somehow climate change policy is 
more practical, more pragmatic if it's delinked from economic and social justice is actually not true. Linking it to, these are more popular policies actually. And then the other reason, the other thing that stands in the way when politicians actually do introduce climate policies is often that if they don't prioritize justice, they're actively unjust. And if we want an example of what that looks like, we can look to Emmanuel Macron in France, where Macron, this very neoliberal president, introduces a tax cut for the very, very rich at the same time as he introduces a carbon pricing scheme that increases the cost of life for working people. And lo and behold, then you have an uprising and indeed rioting in the streets with the Gilets Jaunes movement, the Yellow Vest movement, precisely because there is this split where, as, as one of the protesters put it, a split between the politicians who care about the end of the world when we have to care about the end of the month, right? Yeah. So I think the brilliance, really, of a Green New Deal framework is that it doesn't ask people to choose. It says, we have a plan for you to express the fact that actually we all care about the end of the world. We, I mean, we, we all care about uh, the life support systems that we all depend on, but we by necessity also care about the end of the month. So how do we design policies that, that simultaneously lower emissions and lower that economic strain? And that's exactly what they're trying to do. Let's talk for just a minute about the opposition to a Green New Deal. Of course, there's the climate change deniers like the president and the whole Republican Party. I was a little surprised to learn from your your piece in The Intercept about the Laborers International Union. I didn't know about them. So there's been a sector of the trade union movement with Leuna, as you mentioned, who represent construction workers, but also some of the other unions representing the building trades, who have been very pro-Trump and have been dividing the labor movement really consistently over these pipeline fights. They came out very strongly against the unions that had supported the movement against the Keystone XL pipeline. They were irate that parts of the labor movement, like National Nurses United, like the transit workers unions, like SEIU, parts of SEIU, had come out strongly against the pipeline. And they really presented this as a breach of the principle of solidarity, because these are jobs that their workers would have, their members would have benefited from. Then it got even uglier in the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline and Standing Rock, where even after the most you know, extraordinary, brutal repression and the attack dogs and the tanks and you know, so many protesters being injured, Leona came out uh, attacking the demonstrators and attacking the unions that were standing with them. And then on Trump's first day on the job, the Monday after inauguration, they dutifully went in for a photo op, a guided tour of the White House, uh, announced that Trump's inauguration speech was a great victory for working men and women. And it was, you know, specifically because a couple of his first acts were to, you know, sign executive orders uh, pushing through the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Keystone Pipeline. So this is a real split. And so far, 
they have been, you know, this relatively small block within the labor movement has been really on the attack. And what I argue in my piece is that it's time for the rest of the labor movement to fight back, to take them on. Um, It's time for their own members to fight back. And I think vote out these bosses who are not representing them and are in fact standing with industry and are not standing with workers because the Green New Deal, you know, they've come out attacking the Green New Deal, which has some of the best uh, provisions for specifically union protection, a federal jobs guarantee that would ensure that any worker who lost their job in one of these trades as we decarbonize is able to get a job at the same salary and benefits level, which has been something that's really been missing from the discussion of green jobs up till now, is that we don't just need any old jobs. We need jobs that are as good as the jobs that are being lost in the fossil fuel sector. Um, And so this is really taking that head on. And so if Leuna is still attacking it anyway, then really they, they should be treated as an arm of the oil and gas industry, which is what they have become. One of the unions that you really like is the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. They've made a wonderful proposal. Tell us about that. I think you and I have talked about before that I've been involved in a a project in Canada called the LEAP Manifesto, which is our people's version of a Green New Deal that came out of a gathering of social movement leaders and trade union leaders that came up with a plan to to do exactly what, 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 what is being attempted with the Green New Deal to get off fossil fuels in a huge hurry, but to put justice at the center and labor protections at the center. And after the LEAP Manifesto came out, our team worked with that union at their request to come up with a plan to apply the principles of the LEAP Manifesto to the post office, which at that time was facing a very real prospect of being privatized and and, and, and radically downsized. And so rather than just saying, well, we want to keep things as they are, despite the fact that how we tend to send mail has been you know, radically changed by Amazon and by courier services. Um, they said, we want, we want to change this service that has been at the center of communities for so long. And we want to now be at the center of a transition uh, off of fossil fuels. So we want to have postal banking. We want to have solar panels on the rooftops of every post office. We want a charging station outside. We want a fleet of vehicles that are all electric and all made domestically. And we want to not just be delivering the mail, but be delivering uh, locally grown produce, checking in on the elderly, being part of the caring economy. It's really a radical plan that's being championed by you know a, a really unabashedly progressive union. And that's the kind of thing that coming to what we where we started, that's what it means to make the Green Deal your own, right? That's what we need to be happening from teachers unions, nursing unions, we need every every organized workplace to be getting together and imagining what their workplace would look like if they took rapid decarbonization seriously and you know how could it improve lives how could it lead to a fair economy and you know we see right away that it's certainly is in conflict with the logic of austerity that so many of these workplaces you know have been facing Naomi Klein wrote about the Green New Deal for The Intercept. Naomi, thanks so much. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. The synergy between politics and popular culture has never been clearer or stronger than in the age of Reagan. 
And now there's a wonderful new book on movie culture in the age of Reagan. It's called Make My Day. And the author is Jay Hoberman. For 30 years, he was a film critic for The Village Voice. It's also written for Art Forum, The New York Review, The New York Times, and The Nation. He's written a dozen books, including the brilliant Army of Phantoms, American Movies and the Making of the Cold War. Jay Hoberman, welcome back. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. When you write about movie culture in the age of Reagan, you focus not on what you think are the best movies of the 80s or the movies you most admire. In fact, you pay a lot of attention to the movies you dislike. Why is that? Well, the fact that I dislike these movies uh, doesn't mean that they're not interesting for me to write about. And I chose movies that I felt were symptomatic of what was going on both in politics and the, um, the the culture at large. And Reagan, of course, was often dismissed by liberals as just an actor from old Hollywood. But you think the fact that he was part of old Hollywood gave him a special uh, power and success as president? Uh, definitely. Uh, there, are, there are two things here. I mean, first of all, uh, when he ran for governor of California, uh, the liberals and the Democrats just did not take him seriously. He seemed like a lightweight. And how was he going to beat Pat Brown, a two-term governor of California and a real political powerhouse? What they didn't realize was that an actor knows how to present. An actor knows how to deliver a line. Uh, an, an actor can, uh, can hit their marks. It's very difficult for a politician to, to compete with somebody who's that polished and professional at, at projecting an image. The other thing, and maybe the, uh, uh, the, the more significant one, is that Reagan bought into the whole Hollywood package, particularly in the 1940s. And what I mean by that is that taken as a whole, American movies had a particular kind of ideology. They were very optimistic, forward thinking, imagine that they were inclusive. I mean, in fact, they were not, but they had that self-appointed sense of, uh, of universal appeal. Certainly they wanted to appeal universally and um, mandated happy endings. I mean, there was a production code into the 1960s that kept things from getting too real. I think that Reagan internalized all of this, and this is why I consider him Hollywood's greatest creation. I mean, he sincerely believed this stuff. And um, the one real takeaway I had from doing research at the Reagan Library, if I'm not mistaken, you've done work there too, have yes. you not? But what I did take away from this was the degree to which Hollywood was still so central in his thinking. I mean, you know, his wife had been in the movies also. Nancy was a minor star. And <clears throat> I really think that this was the high point of their lives. I mean, being president was very nice, and he certainly enjoyed it. But I think that it's it's really not as not as great as being a movie star, even when he wasn't, you know, in the first rung. I mean, just to be part of that. And I I say this because they stayed in touch with people. They spent a lot of time reaching out, you know, making videos. I mean, they spent a month making a, a birthday video for Lou Wasserman who had been their agent and who was at that time the leading Democratic fundraiser in California, did not make any difference to them. 
he was, you know, they were together in showbiz. He was their, he was their guru, you know, he was their rabbi. And um, so he was, he was not a great movie star, but he, he, I think he embodied Hollywood more completely than any, than any other star. Well, let's talk about some of the movies. After Reagan was reelected in 1984 in a landslide, you wrote a big piece for the Village Voice where you said that during that campaign year, only one film, quote, mirrored Reaganism in full flower, and that film was Ghostbusters. You called it aesthetically weak but ideologically potent. Tell us about yeah. Ghostbusters. Okay, so now the reason I said that was that Ghostbusters, I think objectively, and you know, I was a working movie critic in in 1984, so I saw a lot of movies. I, I didn't think I didn't find Ghostbusters really that funny. I mean, I, I I saw certain things in it that that were appealing, but you know, the 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 setup was was kind of fun, but the movie was not that that funny. But something it, it inspired, like almost you know, like a fanatical devotion. It, it overperformed. People saw something in there that they really wanted. And I think that uh, the same thing was true with Reagan. And uh, it's not like Ghostbusters is, is, is an allegory of Reaganism or that Reagan was taking cues from Ghostbusters. It's that they're, they're both symptomatic of the same thing, this uh, uh, longing for uh, 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 the world to be in a certain way. And, you know, you and I remember this, but lots of people don't. 1984 was a year that had, like, a really uncanny significance for Americans and for people in the West in general, being the, the, the year of George Orwell's dystopian novel. Yeah. And um, I feel that, in a, in a funny sort of way, both Reagan and the movie liquidated that anxiety. And this is, despite the fact that Reagan... Was uh, was a terrible uh, uh, saber rattler, if not warmonger, you know. Throughout 1983, I mean, he he conjured up a crisis, um, which he then dissipated, which is exactly what the Ghostbusters are accused of doing uh, in the in the movie. You know, like inventing ghosts so that they can exercise them. But I think you know the, there there are two key aspects uh, where the um, uh, the movie and the campaign coincide. Well, three actually, because uh, Ghostbusters makes such a big deal about making the uh, guy from the Environmental Protection Agency like this really humorless, uptight, annoying kind of hippie type. You know, I mean, uh, so they're against regulation. Reagan, you know, hated regulation. You know, they consider that they've come up with this fantastic entrepreneurial plan. Uh, one point, Bill Murray says, "I've worked in the private sector. They demand results." So the, the Wall Street Journal picked up on this, incidentally, when they, they saw the movies being like right there, you know, like a business school. Perfect. And the other thing is that they've invented what they call the indispensable defense science for the, uh, I don't know, for the 20th century mm -hmm. or, or something like that. In 1983, Reagan announced his anti-missile defense system. He called it Star Wars. Wasn't that also a movie? That was a movie, and of course, you know, I think it was at that time still the, the top-grossing movie ever. And he didn't call it Star Wars. That was the press, and that the Democrats called it Star Wars. And they thought that that was, you know, a sign that they were dissing it. 
It was a kind of uh, derisive term. But Reagan understood that that was like a great term, that they handed him you know, a wonderful trademark. I mean, George Lucas wasn't happy about it, and, and Reagan had this riff when he said, well, you know, they call it Star Wars, but, you know, we'll do it, and, you know, the force will be with us, or something like that. So he, he pretended to object to the title, but then he, you know, like used another phrase from the, from the movie. You call Star Wars, quote, a seamless blend of Walt Disney and Lenny Riefenstahl. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, Star Wars is, is, is an amazing entertainment package. Uh, it has this, you know, grade school narrative. And I mean that literally. I mean, it, it is a kid's movie. The fact that it, that it appealed, you know, universally can tell us something about the, what, the, what the audience wanted. In those days. So it has this, this uh, uh, kind of grade school account of a uh, rebellion against a, um, a tyranny, and it's how can you can't quite figure it out. You know, like the princess is also part of the republic, and, you know, it's basically like young people against old, young people and robots against old mean people. But the, uh, the slickness of it, the, uh, the, the way that uh, Lucas fetishizes hardware and, uh, you know, these spectacular scenes. There are scenes that, that quote directly from uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will. And it's not innocent. I mean, he went to film school. Uh, so he certainly was familiar with these movies. And it's not that I, I'm saying that Star Wars is a fascist movie, although it has been said it's a movie that a fascist audience might, in, might enjoy. But that he didn't care. It was something that worked. In a third film we need to talk about, one of Reagan's most famous lines was, go ahead, make my day. This was in 1985 when he was telling Congress that he would veto any tax increase. It's make my day is the title of your book. And of course, it comes from a Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry movie, the 1983 film Sudden Impact. Let's talk about Clint Eastwood's persona on screen. Okay, I mean, Eastwood was, during uh, um, much of the 70s and into the 80s, the number one uh, male star, which is to say the number one star. To me, that's very interesting because whoever's the number one star with John Wayne for a long time is kind of uh, uh, American male ego ideal. And uh, Eastwood was that, although the thing with Eastwood was that he was a, a more ambiguous character. Than, uh, than than John Wayne. He was hipper, in a way. I mean, uh, I remember when he he first started making movies. People thought that oh, maybe he's like, you know, uh, uh, closer to James Dean than to uh, than than to John Wayne. Uh, there's certain moral ambiguity. And when he played Dirty Harry, he was a figure that I call like the legal vigilante. I mean, he could break the law because he was right. Uh, some people saw that as a, as a sort of fascist. Uh, figure. Uh, in any case, he had some very good lines which he could deliver, and Make My Day was one of them. I forget who did the screenplay for uh, Sudden Impact, but it was, a, it was a terrific line, and I think he delivered it to somebody. It was one of these things, are they going to draw their gun? You know, yeah, go ahead and draw, and I'll shoot you, and it'll make my day, that yeah. kind of thing. But Reagan just understood it. it. It stayed with him. I don't think anybody wrote that for him. I think that it just it just popped out the way a lot of movie lines would would pop out uh, of his mouth in, in certain situations. 
And uh, the fact that he's casting himself as Dirty Harry is, uh, is, is very powerful. I mean, Dirty Harry was like the toughest cop in America, you know, which means the toughest cop in the world. You end your book, Make My Day, with a terrific epilogue comparing and contrasting Reagan and Trump. Both came out of an entertainment background. Both were polished salesmen who became president. But the differences are pretty interesting. Reagan, you you have said, was old Hollywood incarnate. You know, the happy ending. Trump clearly is not about happy endings. And his background in entertainment uh, is very different. Uh, yes, obviously he's a he's a creature of uh, of, of television, of um, reality TV, but also of uh, of Fox. I mean, he was a he was a, a, a political pundit on Fox for uh, for a few years, and also was involved in wrestling too, and has been involved in a lot of these tawdry showbiz things. So Trump is is about understands that. Um, the kind of entertainment that he's good at and is by nature divisive. You know, you, 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 want, to, you want to create villains and polarize the audience, you know, to, to, to rev them up. The, you know, Reagan had his demagogic instincts, certainly, particularly when he ran for governor of California. But he was more inclined to, to bring people together, as, uh, as was said, the way that movies do, you know, make a scenario that appeals to the greatest number of people. Uh, Trump has no interest in that. I mean, he's got his audience. Well, in your book, you say Trump is a synthesis of two great movie demagogues of 1976, Howard Beale of Network, and especially Sylvester Stallone's Rocky. Uh, let's focus on Rocky here for a minute, because it seems to me there's a lot of Rocky in the Trump persona. Yes. Well, first of all, all politicians love Rocky. I mean, the, the Rocky theme is a sort of the unofficial anthem of anybody running for president, any man. You know, women don't tend to use it in the same way. The thing with Rocky is that Rocky put a kind of smile face uh, on a form of nativism, and specifically on racism. I mean, this was, a, this was the, uh, really the motor of that movie. The movie was all about the original Rocky, although, you know, it comes up again in the other ones, about putting... Uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, probably the, the perceived as like the biggest threat in American uh, popular culture since Elvis, and maybe a bigger threat, putting him in his place, and that's what that movie's about. You know, some lovable, you know, uh, a white palooka, you know, a, a club fighter comes out of the past and uh, fights this horrendous, powerful black man to a standstill, and it's that, and that's the happy ending. So. Sure. I mean, uh, uh, that's the kind of thing that would appeal to, to Trump in his sunnier moves. But I think that Howard Beale, who could just get on television and rant and rave uh, and uh, um, get people to, like, go to their windows and, and, and respond to him, is a, is, 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 is a model for him, uh, too. So in conclusion, you say Reagan's movie was America, the idealized, happy America of his imagination. What is Trump's movie about? I I think Trump's movie is about Trump. And I think that he has succeeded in making himself such a compelling figure that he he dominates this this landscape. I don't know that, that people felt 
that way about Reagan. I think that, that Reagan was, he could be like an everyman writ large in a way, if that's what he wanted to play. You know, Trump, you know, is like, is like the villain from a, uh, you know, a, a superhero movie. He's a menace. And um, I think people are, are transfixed by that. I mean, some people, I mean, it's, it would be, you know, he certainly does not appeal to everybody. In fact, arguably, he's the least appealing president ever. But the, uh, but the people who like him really do like him. And uh, it's him that they like. Jay Hoberman, his new book is Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. It's totally great. Jim, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.